On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Duke. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we continue on into three-man genesis with the potentially masterpiece, Duke. All right, gentlemen, I had to change my intro a little bit because while I've been operating under the assumption that Duke was obviously a masterpiece, maybe I'm wrong. You're not wrong, Joe. There, there. Based on the uh, the text stream today, there there is some dissenting opinions on that, and that's why we're here. Well, we'll, we'll palaver about it and figure I, it out. And I and I think that even all of our palaver palaver I can't even say the word now. <laughs> all of our palaver listeners out there already are familiar enough with Tom to know that he has questionable taste when it comes to uh, Damn. Oh, heavens. <laughs> so it won't come as a surprise. And Ken, I will say, Ken often talks a big game on the group chat, and then we show up, and there's really nothing going on. So we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> something, will, something will push my buttons in the middle of the week. <laughs> but then by the, by the time we get to the palaver, I've, I've usually reconciled it. You know, and in all honesty, Ken, I think there is something to that because these are extraordinarily talented people who do great and wonderful things. Although sometimes it takes you longer to figure out what that is. Some, like, I worked hard on figuring out the lamb. I put a lot of effort into that. <laughs> and, and until I did, I didn't get it. So, you know, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that as you get into something like this and you're you know, you've listened to it maybe half a dozen times and you think one thing and you spend more time with it and you start to pick up different things. I mean, you know, we, we had this discussion with uh, Marillion's Brave. I mean, how long did we listen to that before we started to figure out what the hell was going on? You know, so I, I, yes. I get it. Um, but there's just something about this album for me and, you know, full disclaimer up front. In my opinion, this is the greatest Genesis album, period, done, no discussion, nothing else to talk about. As Paul gives me all sorts of big, bulgy eyes. <laughs> Provocative. <laughs> I mean, nothing to take away from the other stuff. I just think there's a lot here that sort of brings everything together. One of the things that I've, I've been holding on to is this DVD I bought. Um, at this fantastic place in Nashville called McKay's. If you're ever in Nashville, and I believe there's one in maybe Chattanooga, somewhere else in, in Tennessee, go to McKay's if you like, you know, like resale books and media and stuff. So I was just going through, because every time I go to Nashville, I, I go there and I was looking at the DVDs and there happened to be a full DVD on Duke. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? And so I, I got it, and I, I've been waiting to watch it until we got to this this segment of the palaver. It was produced in, it looks like, 2006, and it's it's an interesting documentary in the way that 
you know, they, they kind of go about it. They right out of the gate, they're talking about Steve Hackett and everything else. And there are there are three people who speak on this this documentary. One by the name of Les Davidson, who is credited as a record producer. Um, can I be a dick? A total douchehead by the name of, of Malcolm Dome, who's credited with uh, being on Total Rock Radio. Who's How just, is that different than any previous palaver, though? I mean, we've we've I, gone douchey I just, before. I, I just I feel bad, but this I, every every word out of this guy's mouth pisses me off. And then there's a <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a there's a guy named Brian Josh who is credited as being the lead guitarist and vocalist for a band called Mostly Autumn, which I have not heard yet, but I want to check it out. And this guy channels most of my feelings about Duke. But one of the things that he says sort of near the end is that Duke is echoes of the past and echoes of the future, Mm. which is exactly what I feel. Mm. So when we talk about echoes of the past and echoes of the future, we have to sort of put everything in context. Now, Ken, this is a very monumental year. Duke was released in 1980. We're in a new decade. Oh, I, I was already reading about Mostly Autumn, but if you insist, I can go back to 1979. Oh, no, please. <laughs> that, was quite a, that was quite a preamble, Joe. We got like, the the, the show notes are already uh, like extraordinary for this episode. We got McKay's Bookstore and Mostly Autumn links already in the show notes. Okay, well can, can, can we go back to Mostly Autumn after we're done? Because I, I, like I said, I just haven't, I haven't figured out more, but you know, whatever you want to do, Ken. Okay. We know that Phil goes to Toronto to be with his wife, and they're on hiatus, so a lot of interesting things happen with the members of Genesis. What's really fascinating is that in October of 1979, Tony Banks releases A Curious Feeling, and then uh, about the same time that uh, Duke comes out, Rutherford's finally ready with his release which is just absolutely fascinating. Steve Hackett, Spectrum Mornings, about this time. I had that on cassette, loved it. Super Tramp Breakfast in America really impacted me as a kid. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode during this time period, also 1979. Pink Floyd, The Wall, what is there to say? Just incredibly influential. Bill Bruford, one of a kind. Uh, so, so he was productive uh, after leaving Genesis. I, I think, I think everyone left uh, uh, Genesis with the urge to make a solo album. Uh, the Steve Howe album is also 1979. Just very, very productive time. So, when Duke comes out, that's early in 1980. Permanent Waves, January mm. of 1980. Yes, very influential. And yeah, I believe we covered that in the palaver. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to put our uh, palaver in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so many waves, so many waves to talk about. Too too many waves to count. Genesis Duke is March twenty eighth, uh, nineteen eighty, and shortly thereafter, Peter Gabriel three and Steve wow. Hackett defector in June, uh, and then not too long after that yes releases drama so Prague is just alive and well and amazing in 1980 wow so permanent waves duke peter gabriel three and drama 
I mean, besides all the other stuff, that's like huge. Yes. And we were about 10 years old and we were influenced by so many things that happened during this period, uh, hearing the wall on the radio. Uh, even uh, November 1980, Alan Parsons Project, Turn of a Friendly Card, who did not hear games people play over and over and over again in our childhood. Right. That's true. Yeah. This actually brings up something. When we preambled about Genesis, you know, I had I had gone off on, you know, sort of my introduction and everything else. And I, I based it mainly around the self-titled record and Invisible Touch. But but Ken, you had made the point, and the more I've cogitated on it, the more that I, I realize that it's true, you know, misunderstanding and turn it on again and even Abacab afterwards, um, you know, they were they were radio staples. So these were songs that, you know, even if I didn't understand necessarily at the time that they were Genesis and they were related, um, they they were sort of in my awareness. So yeah, and that's an interesting point because, you know, I think at this point in time, it's also good to review just popular music in general as well, because that was influencing us as we were getting into Genesis, at, you know, at, at, this, at this young age as much as anything else. And one of the interesting things that also came out in, um, and I may have missed this because I was interrupted uh, during your, your review, but The Buggles, Age of Plastic came out in 1980 um, in January, so that preempted the MTV uh, world, but there's a couple of really fun things that were happening. Like Brian Adams first album um, or self-titled album came out. So he was beginning to hit the airwaves against the wind by Bob Seger was released, which is kind of, uh, could, could any of us get away from that song? Uh, (laughs) We're still trying (laughs) survivors. Uh, self-titled album came out i'm not sure if that actually had eye of the tiger on it but this was certainly the eye of the tiger time billy joel's glass houses wow um, and tommy two-tone there's so much that came out but tommy two-tone came out so we were all obliterated with jenny yeah eight six seven five three oh nine three oh nine so that's kind of some of the stuff that's happening to us while duke is being released and i remember my early exposure to Duke, and I would say that this even carried over into Abacab, is I'm listening to all this popular music, and I'm loving all of the popular music, right? I'm loving Jenny. I'm I'm loving the, the hits that are coming out of the time. And anytime I heard Genesis, I equally enjoyed their songs, if you will, as quote-unquote hits. But to me, there was always something different about, oh, that's that band. They're like... They're like different. Like even when Abacab came out and Man on the Corner was like, there's something different about these guys. They're like one of those other bands that like were that are really good that have been around forever. And that's really all the thought that I gave to it in the 80s as as we progressed before I really got introduced to them when we were a bit older. But there's always something about about them in the grand scheme of things that seemed to me to be very very different. If I'm not mistaken, I had misunderstanding on a KTEL Records compilation. I wouldn't say it was my favorite song on the compilation, but it was probably my second favorite. It's, Pretty impressive. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So. Yeah, you know, it, it, it absolutely. There's there's so much to get into, and, and we're probably going to be here talking for three hours, as Paul mentioned anyway. 
to your point, Paul, you know, we, we talk about these songs that were big on the radio. I mean, how many, just, just to, to point out the obvious, how many big AOR hits were in 13.8? None. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm teed up for that conversation. I'm Are you? That right. Oh, that's yeah, right. We got to yeah. demystify that. But, but, but the point is, I mean, even if you didn't necessarily understand why it was different, these guys were doing something. They're, they yeah. brought something different to the table. I have to tell you, I have no recollection of Turn It On Again ever being on the radio. I only really experienced that song live and from uh, other bands playing it and then seeing it, you know, I, I and listening to it on the record. I don't ever remember that song being on the radio. Interesting. Yeah. Let's. Um, it was. Yeah, clearly. Let's um, let's do the particulars of the album and then we can explore. So Duke, as Ken mentioned, released in March of 1980, produced by David Henschel and Genesis. This is, I believe, the last time David Henschel will join us. Released on the label Charisma, Tony Banks playing keyboards, backing vocals, and 12-string guitar, Mike Rutherford playing guitars, basses, bass pedals, and backing vocals, and Phil Collins doing drums, vocals, drum machine, percussion, and something else that goes off the page. Track listing, Behind the Lines, Crossing of the Streams there. Duchess, Guide Vocal, Man of Our Times, Misunderstanding, Heat Haze, Turn It On Again, Alone Tonight, Cul-de-Sac, Please Don't Ask, Duke's Travels, and Duke's End. Duke is the 10th studio album by English rock band Genesis, released in March 1980 on Charisma Records. The album followed a period of inactivity for the band in early 1979. Phil Collins moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in an effort to salvage his failing first marriage, while Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford recorded solo albums. Collins returned to the UK after his marriage ended and wrote a significant amount of material, some of which was used for Duke, and some was later reworked for his first solo album, Face Value. Duke contained a mix of individually written songs and tracks that evolved from jam sessions in mid-1979, while recording took place at the end of the year. The break in activity rejuvenated the band, and they found the album an easy one to work on. Duke was positively received by music critics, who praised the album for bridging the band's progressive rock-oriented past via experimental pieces such as the closing 10-minute Duke's Travels, Duke's End Suite, with the more pop-rock-oriented, commercial, commercially accessible direction, as displayed on the hit singles Turn It On Again, Duchess, and Misunderstanding. It was the first album by the group to reach number one in the UK charts, and has since been certified platinum in both the UK and the US. I would just like to take issue initially with one of the sentences in there. I would argue that while Duchess may have in fact been a a single i don't know that it is pop rock oriented fair enough agreed for me duke is the band's best album all it, right it doesn't necessarily have the band's best songs um maybe one or two of them are in there i think you can find better songs on other albums but Track for track, from beginning to end, the band's best album. This album for me is like the Genesis Grace Under Pressure. I cannot get through a year without listening to this for like a week. I do think that there is a certain accessibility to it that makes it 
a little bit more easy to get into, but there's something about this record. I never, never get tired of listening to it. I certainly agree with you. I don't know at what point I really discovered this album and, and, and figured out how wonderful it was. My guess is, Paul, you probably pointed me in the direction of it. And, and it's funny, as is often the case with me, there, there's one or two sort of seemingly incongruous moments or lyrics or something that sort of gets into my brain and it just starts permeating everything else. And, you know, there, there are a couple of lines in here that, that did that for me and, and it, it, it excited me. And the more time I spent with it, the more I came to appreciate it. I think this album is much maligned because people often judge it solely by misunderstanding, turn it on again, please don't ask. And they go, oh, you know, this is where Phil started to do his whatever. There's so much more to this record. And while, yes, there are songs that are more commercially accessible, this album taken as a whole, much like when we get into Invisible Touch and, and the Genesis album, there are truly musically intricate and wonderful songs going on there as well that no one ever talks about or no one ever thinks about. The beauty of Duke is really, honestly, how it's it's tracked out. The, the main suite, Behind the Lines, um, Duchess, Guide Vocal, at least Duke's Travel and Duke's End, there may be another part in there, you know, was was sort of conceived oh it turn it on again was in the middle of that yeah. um was sort of conceived as a as a, a 30 minute suite or whatever and they decided to split it up i think if they had put all that together into one the album would would probably not have the impact that it has because what happens is the fact that they split that up and you have these recurring lyric and musical themes throughout the album and it gets interspersed with some other things that end up ultimately strengthening the metaphor because what happens to me for duke is you have different layers of metaphors that work throughout all of these songs and you can follow whatever line you want and you can interpret several of the songs in different ways depending on which metaphor line that you're on having built the album that way really to me increases the power and the impact that this album has. I totally agree with you, Joe. It's so much more balanced the way it's tracked. And when you finish guide vocal, you go to so many more places before you get back to Duke's travels and Duke's end. Mm. And it's so much more powerful. And it goes back to, you know, my favorite prancing pixie ian anderson's great quote the idea of a concept album is redundant every album should have a conceptual theme running through it and when you think about some of the other albums that we mentioned over the last couple of weeks like the sticks albums where each of their albums had a thematic piece to it even though it wasn't necessarily a concept album right that is what we're getting with duke before we go any further i i just have to ask you this question joe before, as part of your preparation, do you pick 25 cent words to throw into the podcast or do they just happen naturally to you? <laughs> what? Maligned, I... cogitated. 
I mean, there was another one in there that I, that I, that I forgot already. I can't even keep up with the palaver dictionary anymore. Sadly, that's just the way I speak. People, oh, people, people are getting smarter, I think, by listening to, to this. Yeah, maybe this is why people at John Anderson concerts recognize me. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Oh, boy. The other thing. I, I read so much shit online about people talking about how Genesis sold out and they're like, Phil is writing about this and they're so like, it's so poppy. And I'm thinking like, if you want to do that, if you want to talk about that on invisible touch, okay. I can't defend it at all. I can't defend it at all. But like on this record, there's, there's really not a lot of that going on there. I mean, like someone, if someone wants to bag and rag on, please don't ask. You can take that song out of here and put it on any one of the last three albums, and it stands up completely. There's nothing selling out about that song at all. Well, I tend to agree with you. Please Don't Ask was was sort of like the last thing I had trouble with, but I was able to complete the mental gymnastics to actually fit it into my, <laughs> my metaphor narrative very well. So I'm totally on board at this point. There's something about this. So, you know, what we're seeing <laughs> is the, the genesis of really of Phil as a songwriter, right? Mm. And, you know, he did this sort of later in life. But, I mean, think about when when we were younger or even when we were older. It's those times of anguish in your life that tend to move you creatively. And there's a level of earnestness, if that's the right word, in these songs of Phil's, you can tell this guy's had a rough time. You can tell it in the songs that he wrote. You can tell it in the the vocal delivery. And not even just in those songs, but in some of the other songs. Like, we'll get to guide vocal and, and whatnot. He is reaching emotional depths and communicating that through his voice at this point that you haven't heard before. You can feel this. And and this guy, Brian Josh, speaks to that in this documentary. He goes on about, you know, that take of guide vocal, he says they probably couldn't have gotten that again. Mm. You know, there there's just there's something there that that Phil is channeling. And it's it's painful, but it's beautiful at the same time. I, I get it. I get it. But what about previously? And then there were three. Burning Rope, Many Too Many. I, honestly, I... I I think he was there. I, I think he was there, but I think it was... It was a technical thing. I think now you have someone who understands how to sing, has the, the technical capability, but he has that sort of emotional state that gets a little bit deeper. That's my thought. I mean, I, you know, I I think the enough. theme. I think the theme that runs through this, and I actually got this off of. I'm pretty sure I got it off of song meetings as I was reading through all of it. Somebody along there said it brilliantly about one of the songs, and I said, "Yes, that to me, that's what the theme is. For me, the theme that goes through Duke is the futility of ambition." Yes. And it's Ozymandias all over again. It it absolutely <laughs> is, right? No matter what, no matter what we do, we always find ourselves back in the same spot, alone, tired, frustrated, don't know what to do, and no matter how hard we work at it, there's always still more plodding ahead. 
And we do it because we're driven by ambition, whether it's ambitions of love, ambitions of career, ambitions of creativity. And I think in a way, well, I have an opinion, and, and, and this may be unfounded, but to me, Duke is when Tony Banks is no longer a wanker. Um, <laughs> I, 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 mm -hmm. think, I think from here on out, Tony has just ridiculous command of melody. We no longer have to wait, you know, five minutes through a through a, a song to get to the melody that we love. Like, <laughs> there, right from the from the start. And I think okay. Between, well, I I will debate you on Heat Haze because they're really changing keys and they're really beating around the bush in that one. I, Whoa. And, oh, tread but, carefully, tread carefully. Well, <laughs> no, boy, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I th you're right. I think you're right. I think you're totally right, wait, right wait, 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 about, about right that. Now, either one of you sing a verse in Heat Haze right now. Can you do it? Can you just uh, pull it out of thin air? Can I get the lyrics? Hold on. Let me get the lyrics because I, I, I'll, I'll screw them up. Well, I can't sing, but... The, I, I think um, it's proving my point, though. It's just, it it's, isn't. It it's isn't. just not natural. It's a very contrived verse. But 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 the chorus is, is absolutely brilliant. But, we'll get that. Well, okay. It, it I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to sing on the palaver. It, it, but. Really, it really doesn't matter, right? And and here's, you know, but, oh, God, you guys are great because this leads perfectly into one of the things that was said in the documentary. This Les Davidson guy, right out of the gate, Les Davidson makes the point, and I don't totally agree with him at all, that when Steve left, he basically took all of the prog with him. Now, for reasons I've already mentioned i think there's plenty of prog still here another interesting thing just generally speaking so brian josh describes duke the album this guy is i, I really do need to learn more about him because he's talking about you know he came late to this album and appreciating it for what it is and he says whereas the other genesis albums would have like a color he feels that duke has many colors hmm which I think is is very cool. Mm. That is very cool. I see it as mostly green because of the, uh, the cover. cover. The cover, yeah. However, so real quick, we've talked we've talked a lot about drum sounds on the palaver. We've talked a lot about maybe Genesis being a little behind the curve in some of the production that they have. While I don't think Duke is by any way, shape, or form a production masterpiece. I just freaking cannot get enough of the giant room drum sound going on, particularly in in the in the in the the uh, suite, right? The all of those tracks. Oh yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, I may have spent the last fifteen years of my life trying to duplicate the a giant room sound <laughs> in your kitchen, among <laughs> other places. Like it is just so wonderful. It feels so live. It feels like, you know, when behind the line starts, it feels like they all just showed up. They got in a big room and they just threw a bunch of room mics in and they just went for it. And, and, and I think that's another thing that, that makes this album so easy to connect. It, it's not sterile at all. It feels like the three guys just got in a room and went for it. Well, that's what they did during Lamb, but this is the more grown up version of that. Right, yeah. You you touched on this the sound, so let's quickly go down the rabbit hole of Polar Studios, right? So they they went to Sweden to record at Polar Studios, which was uh I guess 
owned and operated by two of the guys from ABBA. Of course. Nice. Cool. Among the notable albums to have been recorded, besides Duke, is Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor. Okay. Artists such as the Ramones, Ramstein, Roxy Music, Adam Ant, Backstreet Boys, Beastie Boys, Belinda Cartlisle, Burt Bacharach, Frankie, Celine Dion, Roxette, Terra Firma, Entombed the Helicopters, and Joan Armitrading have recorded there. So, you know, got some history there. Kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. I would like to quickly sort of talk about the, the different layers of metaphor and, and Paul, it ties into your comment on the futility of ambition, right? Because when you've got the Duke and, and Duchess titles with something like cul-de-sac you are, and the, even, even the, the musical fanfare portion of Behind the Lines, you can think of royalty, leaders of men, whatever. Obviously, with Duchess, though, you bring in the, the pop star aspect to it. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two different levels that you know, sort of operate simultaneously. And each one of those can manifest itself in both driving ambition as well as failed ambition. And in addition to the isolation and loneliness that can come from being elevated into these positions, either one of those ultimately works with that. When you get to the songs like Please Don't Ask and Alone Again, yeah, it's sort of like you go from the third person to the first person and sort of explore the box that these people find themselves in. I find that to be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, and I love, to me, best song on the album, Cul-de-Sac. Oh, God. Is, it's so much deeper than this, but it's basically like, we're all doing it, you're doing it, and you're not going to get away from it. And guess what? You don't even fucking know it. <laughs> It's just this nefarious thing that's happening to you. How can you fight a foe so deadly when you don't even know it's there? Now that the job is almost done, maybe some escape. No. No. Not not even one. Not even one, motherfuckers. And and this is another part to this, right? So you – oh, God, I fucking love this album so much. I'm going to explode. We need to get the duct tape out for Joe's head here. (laughs) (laughs) In a good way. <laughs> because you've you've got the musical aspect, and I think this is where you really start to see the three of them start to, you know, maybe write as, as they're improving together, right? And you get sort of an organic, lively feel to that in addition to the other songs. And, and it manifests itself in just some fantastic musical moments. As you pointed out, Paul, Tony's like not wanking around anymore. And while Tony is is you know, bringing the the melody machine, if you will, fucking Tony and Mike underneath are slaying it. Mm. I get mm. a, I get Phil ex- and Mike. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Phil and Mike. I get excited for what I, you know, when I pick up on good hi hat playing, and Phil is all over that on this, oh. and and Mike Rutherford <laughs> on the bass is freaking slaying it. So you've got all this going on, and then on top of that, you have. For the most part, front to back, I think the strongest set of lyrics Genesis has ever put together. And it just connects with me, and I love it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I do have a little uh, segue for that perfect hi-hat. I mean, I mean, th- this is clearly Phil's 
Eddie Van Halen moment where he's the loudest thing in the mix. And if this isn't enough proof, go to seconds out where the whole thing is just a drum tutorial with a few guys playing chords in the background. Maybe it was, you know, with uh, David Henschel and, and Tony and Mike supporting this whole thing. We, we love Phil. Phil sounds great. This drum sound sounds great. Let's make this a centerpiece of the album. But this is how you get, a drum superstar by featuring mostly drums in the album in any other band. He could have been buried uh, somewhat, you know, and, and in previous mixes, he was a little bit buried. This might fit into this idea of, of three man Genesis and the, the magic number and everything else. Now, Rutherford has, has a, a quote where he talks about this, although he, and, and Phil talks about it too, but they, they talk about it in terms of, of composers in the fact that, you know, when you've got five people trying to write, it's very difficult to keep everyone happy. Peter leaves and then you have this sort of release and then eventually the the four people expand to fill the room and and then that's too much. But but according to Rutherford and, and Collins, three is kind of a good number where you can sort of satisfy everyone who who is composing songs. I think back to the days when you guys would record and you would, no one could ever agree on what, what the hell the mix should be, right? Because you had, you had five guys who had very, very strong feelings. And it may very well be that when you've got, you know, just three guys, it might be easier to sort of accommodate all of that. Or maybe Henschel had gotten better at working with them. I don't really know what it was, but there's, you know, clearly at this point, they had reached sort of a happy equilibrium with each other in terms of how to do this, because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, this sort of balance in the mix gets maintained from here on out at this point. There, it's not like you ever have, you know, with the exception of, of Mike, the disappearing guitarist, um, you know, someone not or being buried in the mix, I think. Is, is that fair to say? I'm mostly concerned with Mike, the disappearing bassist. I think Phil owes Mike three or four million in those like lost uh, deals for endorsing the instruments and selling the strings and doing the DVDs. Like if, if you would have made the bass the loudest instrument in this, he would have been equivalent with Chris Squire because he just has some amazing lines. Yeah, he but, does. But he's just not mixed quite to that level. So, you know. Yeah, it's a great call out, Ken, because... When I think about Rutherford in this album, this is Mr. Subtle and low-key, like, just kind of hanging around in the back. And, um, and you know, every once in a while, he, like, sort of steps up into the light and goes, yeah, I'm a badass. Here I go. <laughs> you know? And then he just kind of fades back again. Uh, but those moments are so amazing. But you're absolutely right. Like, if they would have mixed him hot, like, as hot as the drums. Uh, yeah something else yeah. well and, and and ken i you know i think you know you you pointed out a a live recording um where where daryl was was kicking it on the bass i assume it was i think it was duke's travels i made peace with daryl you know he he's often on my list but man when he's on he's on but but you know that and, and mike has some in my opinion less than complimentary things to say about daryl which is an odd thing for him to have said um, but I've seen clips and, and it's probably, I, I don't know how, what the relationship is, but I've seen clips of Duke's travels and I've seen clips of Duchess 
And I've seen both of them playing bass on that. And mm. whoever's playing bass on either one of those is just having the freaking time of their life. Yep. It's, yep. it's phenomenal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That particular clip I sent you, I believe it was 1980 with Daryl on bass. Mm. So just much love for Daryl. I, I want to mention briefly then, um, before we get actually into it, um, the actual album, this, you know, you mentioned 1980. So let's talk about this, this Nebworth thing that is shown on this video here. And if it's 1980, that doesn't make any sense. It, it must have been later than that. It might have been 90. I don't know. But there, there's a video clip of them performing Turn It On Again. And it's the strangest thing because it's Genesis with Phil's band. So you've got like Daryl and Mike are doubling the guitars. You've got Phil's um, bass player dude. You've got a small horn section. You've got Tony. You've got some other guy on uh, on keys. And then, of course, you have Chester. And you've got a very clean-cut Phil at this point, which means it must have been about 1990, not 1980. I probably just wrote it down wrong. Um, and it's just, it's the weirdest thing. I never knew that they ever crossed streams to that effect. And I just, I found that to be fascinating. And, and what really struck me out is when the clip starts, there's a, there's a picture of the other keyboardist dude. And you're like, who the hell's that? And then they cut <laughs> right to Tony and you're going, what? <laughs> and next thing you know, you see, you see Mike and Daryl with both with guitars. Hmm. And I was getting really, really confused at this point. They show the bass player and it's like, oh, I see what's going on here. Yeah, the way that 19, the 1990 Nebworth on the wikis, as far as the performers are listed, it it says Phil Collins with Genesis. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Does it say what they performed? Uh, it does not on this one, but I might be able to dig a little deeper. I never knew that such a thing happened. It just seemed very strange to me. And, and the interesting thing about that is... In this particular clip, now granted, it's only a, you know, a small, very small portion of Turn It On Again. Tony is absolutely animated. He's like bouncing around, which seems to be very un-Tony-like. <laughs> is this 1990? Yeah. Because they did a lot of Nebworth going back to 76 and 78, but it looks like you're talking about 90. Yeah, I think it's 90. It is 90. Oh, it's pretty short. They only did four tunes. Mama, that's all. Throwing it all away. Turn it on again. June 1990. Phil Collins also had a short set in the air tonight. Colors, a drum duet, Another Day in Paradise, and Sue, Sue, Studio. I think, yeah, I think they were all rolling in the bucks then, and they were just happy to, to get yeah, out there. It was and... 1990, man. That was high times. It was high times. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I think it's about time we get into the uh, the album itself. Unless anyone has anything else. So I just want to share. I got into this album probably in the 1990 time frame. Mostly because I had experienced the Invisible Touch tour. And... I wanted to get into all of the Genesis catalog. And as I was going through, you know, certain albums sort of piqued my interest. I'm sure, you know, you guys know which ones those are based on all of our discussions. But Duke was a huge one. I spent many a times driving back from Jim Femino's studios at like two in the morning 
in my Ford Escort blasting oh, yes. Duke out <laughs> out of my open windows. <laughs> Uh, driving through what I used to call Paul Zotter's wilderness ride home because there were so many animals that in the middle of summer that I would see, you know, on the streets, in the back roads. There's something really magical about that, particularly at the beginning of Duchess with all of the the drum sounds and everything and the and the, the cricket type sounds that come in. It was very fitting for my uh, for my nighttime ride home. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. That's very cool. I love it. So we start with behind the lines, um, you know, right out of the gate, we get, we get Tony's sort of fanfare riff, which apparently was, you know, partially responsible for the name of the album anyway. And there's an energy here right out of the gate. Mm. It's, 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 it's going and you're like, all right, we're on, let's do it. There are two key lyrics in this song for me. One's only become interesting to me recently. It's hotter than I've known before, but I feel so cold. This is interesting because as of late, I have been fixated on the line from Red Rain where Peter sings, it can't be so cold, the ground is still warm to touch. Mm, I, love I, that. I love that sort of dichotomy. And, you know, this is this is flipped here, but it's it's this it's a very similar sort of sentiment. And when I picked up on that recently, I'm like, Ooh, that's really cool. I love that. So that's kind of cool. But, uh, for me, one of the, the key lines in this whole album is I can only stay if you've the will to keep me here. I love that. And mm. the other part to all of this, and we'll get into this with, with the guide vocal section is you've got the, the two main metaphors that I've already discussed. But there's this shadow character that's sitting behind everything. And depending on which metaphor line you're on, you're never really sure who that character is or or what it is they're guiding or what their true intentions are. And it can be sinister. And as we've discussed before, <laughs> Joe likes his sinister. <laughs> so there's something about that line that sort of taps into that that sort of subplot that I like. What do you think about the structure? I mean, yeah. It's a broken love song, and yet they take so long to get to the words. Is there any significance in the turmoil that comes before this? I think they were just jamming. Okay. It, it took them a while before they wanted to sing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may be that simple. To your point, Ken, I think it builds a certain amount of tension, anticipation. Mm -hmm. And for those people that we've already talked about who want to to claim that, that Genesis has sold the farm and everything else, and this Malcolm Dome being one of them, I would point to song structures like this. Because this is not normal. This is not, hey, let's get right into the verse and let's, you know, whatever. So they're still doing things the way Genesis do things. Fair enough. It's I no mean, Epping Forest, but it's pretty Epping crazy. Well, thank goodness it's no Epping Forest. The, so you know, Joe, in your readings and 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 all like and all of the things that I've watched about the band, I, I don't I don't really ever remember reading or watching or listening or hearing any of this kind of 
talk about, oh, there was all this pressure from the record company to do this. And, oh, we had this this pressure on our shoulders. This is their 10th album. And as far as I can tell, they did it just the way they did everything else. They got together and did whatever the fuck they wanted to do. Yeah, that seems to be the case. <laughs> you know, the idea that that they sold the farm here, it just doesn't... For, for me on this, again, Invisible Touch, okay, I'm, that's hard to defend. I don't really feel like it here. They, this is the little bits of old meeting the little bits of new. They're making an accessible song that still has several minutes of delicious introduction. So let me let me throw out quickly, and I should have done this before, but but let me throw out a paraphrased quote from this Malcolm Dome guy. He says, in his opinion, Barbara Streisand or Neil Diamond fans could relate to Duke more than fans of Trespass and Nursery Crime. And to him, at this point, the genesis that he knew and loved was essentially dead. I say, foo on you, sir. Foo on you. I mean, he's going all the way back to Trespass and Nursery Crime, right? Right. So, I mean, there is a pretty stark difference between, you know, between those, those records and Duke. And and I think and this is this is the double edged sword. You want to progress, you want to grow, you want to advance musically, but there are always people who want you to do nursery crime part three, part four, part five, part six, part seven, right? Right. And then and, they'll criticize you for that. Right. And 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 to my point, we have spent hours on the palaver talking about all those previous albums, and for the most part, loving them. And here I am loving this album to the point that I can't even contain myself. And I can tell you that I have never in my life listened to a Barbra Streisand album. <laughs> Maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> so Behind the Lines just flows seamlessly into Duchess. Now we have to go into Mike's book at this point, because this becomes very, very important. Dad always thought that you should try and glean something from other people. He believed that it was important to keep an open mind, to consider everything that might be put to you and learn what you could. And this must have rubbed off on me because of the pl one of the places I particularly wanted to visit while I was in Japan was the Roland Music Factory in Tokyo. They made some nice guitar effect pedals and I wanted to see what else they had. The rule of thumb in the band was always that we should learn how to use anything that was available and then choose to use it or not. The electric sitar, which I'd bought in New York at the same time as my six-string microflet bass, was a good example. For every album we wrote, I would bring my electric sitar out and try and get it on. Steve had played it on I Know What I Like, and I tried it on Follow You, Follow Me, but sometimes the song just says, thanks, but no thanks. Jumping ahead, none of the pedals I saw at the Roland factory that day really appealed to me, but I did pick up some drum machines, one for me, one for Tony, and one for Phil. Phil wasn't very grateful. I'm a drummer. What do I want a drum machine for? I was a bit miffed, but thought he'd probably find something to do with it. He did. The opening bars of In the Air Tonight were programmed on that drum machine. Mm. So <laughs> I love this. So here we, here we go. You know, they play a gig in, in Tokyo. Mike Rutherford goes to the Roland factory because he wants some guitar pedals. And instead, he picks up three drum machines. Now, 
one of the hallmarks of Genesis going forward in Phil Collins is this ability to integrate the drum machine with the live playing. Bands like the Buggles would go one way and then other bands would, oh, we need a drummer. But I think one of the, the strong points of Genesis, certainly in, in the era moving forward, is this ability to combine those two things. And this is where it came about, you know, and, and Phil didn't even want it. That's amazing to me. Mm. And, and so here, when you get to Duchess, you, you have the first, the first salvo in this, right? And of course, we all know what's going to happen in In the Air Tonight. But it, it's very important, I think, that we have this three-minute stretch. And Paul, this is what you were talking about, this sort of mood part, this ambient part with the drum machine and the shakers and, and, and all of that, which is, is absolutely beautiful. The electric piano, which I love so much, mm. showing up and, and really adding to that. This is one of those things that's echoing towards the future in huge, huge ways. And I love it. Well, one of the things that I love, I love when artists start any line with the word and. I don't know why, right? <laughs> and is like something, and is something that you say after something else, right? So, so, so I, you're here I to drop f bombs and, and, and <laughs> promulgate incorrect that. grammar, and all she had to do was step into the light. It's, uh, it's a for, for me, gorgeous it's more, setup. It's more, it's more the second verse when he says, "And on the road." Oh, mm -hmm. right, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. There's just a terrific moment, and you know, when you talk about the futility of ambition, and this is just it. I mean, even at age 19 and 20, like somehow you can relate to this. Here's my story. I'll geek out on, on you guys for a couple minutes. And those who listen to our Les Mis uh, episode won't be surprised to hear this story. You know, even at age 19, I could, I could totally relate to, to the idea about this because, you know, I was highly involved in the musicals and the drama uh, plays and during high school. And it was that was pretty much my extracurricular life for my entire journey through high school. Every single fall, every single every single spring, that's what I did from three to five. The whole time I was doing that, my, I was basically like, I'm doing this because I'm going to be the lead in the my in the musical when I'm a senior. Like that's that's why I was in plays I didn't even care about because I just was like, I'm going to do that. And I got there and I and I was the lead and I worked my balls off for so long to get that and during that whole entire you know three or four months to prepare for that musical and i was happy to be flanked by none other than ken gregory in that musical as well and <laughs> and and i remember it being done and finishing the the you know the the three performances that we did and i sort of like woke up the next day and was like huh like, that's it. You know, all <laughs> okay. that work. And I was kind of like, and, you know, I didn't really like how this went. And this could have been better. And I never really got that part right. And just was kind of like left with this sort of hole. There's got to be something else for me to do. And yet, like, there was nothing else for me to do. Like, it was done. I was over. I wasn't, you know, my, my theater career had ended. So maybe that makes sense. And maybe it doesn't. At age 19, when I was 
listening to this and thinking about this and dream about she sang all of her songs and everybody cried for more and and you know it's just like i could somehow in some small way totally relate to this and 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 it's funny when you listen to the song right because you're you're thinking about it in a in a linear fashion and and she's got this drive this ambition and then you know she makes it and everyone loves it and then they pull the rug out but time went by it wasn't so easy now all uphill and not feeling so strong yes times were hard too much thinking about the future and what people might want so within the space of that song you get the whole the whole damn thing yeah it's well, amazing that spirit of the radio was released <laughs> within a month of this oh boy now that now that the cat's out of the bag i suppose if we took this palaver and we uh set it to the um metaphor of our senior play joe y- you would be the narrator in pippin paul you were in fact pippin in pippin and i was the supposed comic relief the king in pippin Pippin. So, so it, we're, we're just carrying on this this thing that came from our past. Just how, thirty years later, we are stuck in the same cul-de-sac. Would you say? <laughs> Boom! Well Can't played. get away from it. <laughs> well played, Ken. So the other piece around this is like you can you can transcribe this. Like obviously, it's about an art an artist, a performer, but you can transcribe this to any career you want. Oh yeah, yeah you peak and you're like oh. Yikes, I still have the same problems I had yesterday. Yep, you're clawing and you're fighting for what you want to get. And then you get there and then you're like, holy fuck, it's all uphill still. Like, I'm not at any better place than I was before. And now there's even more pressure on me because maybe I've got kids, maybe I've got whatever, or maybe I just have this constant ambition that never gets fed. And there's just constantly more and more to do. And now because I'm achieving, there's more and more people who are expecting from me. And it becomes crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right. I'm just going to throw this in, though. It is interesting that the character is female. I mean, you know, why why not a male? (laughs) The world world needs more strong female characters, as we've discussed. (laughs) Maybe they felt if they had a song called Duke with an album called Duke and then Duke's Travels and Duke's End, it would be too much and Duchess broke it up. I don't know. If it was a male character, it would have been too close to Phil himself, perhaps? I, it's, it's a good call out. There's always two people in a relationship. This, this is going to sound unfair, so I'll try to figure out how to say this. Well, it's certainly easy to look at Phil Collins and blame him because his marriage broke up because he was on the on the road for however long there it takes two to tango right so the the former mrs collins she had ambitions she had things in life that she wanted to do she they weren't being fulfilled this could just as easily be the other side of the coin the other thing that i sometimes play with in my mind is that we always see this and the flow of all of these songs and the theme of all of these songs being between two people. But it also could be a single protagonist with an internal conflict. Behind the lines doesn't have to be necessarily about another person. It could be about the driving ambition within. Duchess could be actually the driving ambition inside of the performer. And right. that ambition, the driving force, could be of the female persuasion a la Neil Peart's 
counterparts. Oh, and nice. And then even guide vocal could be the internal ambition speaking to the protagonist. Can can we talk about guide vocal? Yeah. Can we please? Now, <laughs> Ken, you expressed some dissatisfaction with guide vocal. I had access to Duke on uh, bootleg cassette at the exact same time I had access to, and then there were three on bootleg cassette, and I gravitated towards, and then there were three. It was gorgeous, a little proggy, it was mysterious, beautiful melodies. And then this was just too broken up for me. You're talking about the sequence of tracks as a bonus. And I'm talking about the sequence of tracks as a hindrance. I just don't see the flow here. You know, I can take each piece one by one, but it, yeah. See that? That's, it's so that's... funny to hear that because <laughs> I basically tracks one, two, and three to me is like one track. Yeah. Like I never, ever listen to any one of those three separately. I always listen to all of them together. Absolutely. Although sometimes I'm, I'm, tempted to just skip right to guide vocal because I do love it so much. <laughs> but but for me, you know, guide vocal after everything sort of falls apart in in Duchess, right? You you go to guide vocal. I am the one who guided you this far. All you know and all you feel. Nobody must know my name for nobody would understand and you kill what you fear. So you you have this idea, right? And, and you, you just came out of a, of a story about a pop star, and oftentimes there you know there can be people sort of behind the scenes that are driving it, right? So you get, like I said, this sort of this subplot of of who is this guy and and what are they doing? Paul, I'd love your your potential interpretation of of that maybe being the the internal ambition and drive, irrespective of that, the way that this is delivered. It's so sad. It's regretful. It's almost like I did everything I could for you and I, I can't do it anymore. I have to leave. And it goes back to that line in Behind the Lines. I can only stay if you've the will to keep me here. So after, by the time we get to Duchess and everything falls apart, that will isn't there. You can't keep this person. This person has to go. The emotion and the delivery of that, it's very, very sad. And and that's going to become important when we get to Duke's travels. When this lyric shows up again, the emotional impact is potentially even stronger, but the emotional direction is decidedly different. And we don't know it yet, but there's a line that is not given to us in guide vocal. And that line becomes so fucking important when it's repeated in Duke's travels. In this connection throughout the whole thing and and the the two ways that this is presented is what one of the major things that drives me about this album. Absolutely love it. Ooh. You you might sell me after all. <laughs> I'm I'm waiting with bated breath. This better be good. Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> wow. I don't think I can add anything to that. <laughs> I just, oh, I love it so much. It's so good. Uh, so, oh, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to add something to this because it's something that's sort of haunted me for years. And it's probably just a simple coincidence at the end of Duchess, right before guide vocal starts in, there's a, there's a small piano um, melody 
kind of mm-hmm. does this. And then boom, it starts into. And way, 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 way ahead to my next favorite Genesis album is We Can't Dance. There is a track in there called Never a Time. And Never a Time is probably one that many people will just dismiss as a senseless pop song even though it is the format of it is not poppy whatsoever it's it's quite linear and the song is basically about a relationship that has been doomed for quite some time and finally the protagonist is going to tell the person that they are in fact going to break up with them and the melody in that whole song is do 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 it's basically so close to the theme of this you know that little thing and it has always haunted me that is are these two songs connected in any way i love that that's cool <laughs> i wonder ken hold on to that we'll get back to it when we get to uh to duke's travels take what's yours and be damned that is fucking powerful. You don't really have to add in be damned. Right. Yeah. That is just what you're talking about there, Joe. Like that last bit of anguish. Right? Yes. And and it, it is it is anguished. Now I think it's possible that at the ripe age of twenty three, that I knew I was gonna marry and get divorced to the person that I was dating. Wow. And that some and somehow <laughs> somehow that all of this music connected with me in, in, in that way. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty fucking heavy, dude. <laughs> I'm gonna stop listening to Genesis right here. That's your, <laughs> damn, that's your TARDIS right there. <laughs> so so that gets us into Man of Our Times. Now, Paul, I have in my head that you used to really dig on this song. I still do. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, Ken described it as, what did you call it, Ken? Half done? Oh, I said that there were five songs in this album that were half-baked and functioned as packing foam. Right. Packing foam. It's funny that, Paul, you've always loved this song. Ken, you think it's packing foam. Mike Rutherford, who wrote the song, agrees with Ken. in terms of my own songs duke was an album of highs and lows the low being man of our times which was my attempt to be a bit gary newman i had a guitar synthesizer for the first time which allowed me to write songs with string parts i wasn't a great fan of synth stuff but once again i thought it was important to investigate what was on offer with hindsight it's a song that's best forgotten like the new romantic haircuts they always worried me Wow. Can you believe that? I think wow. Man of Our Times is great, but <laughs> I I I love Man of Our Times. I might suggest that the two Mike Rutherford songs on this record if I had if I had to force rank them maybe at the bottom of the list uh, after after all these years. Mm-hmm. But um the melody, the guitar melody or maybe it's a guitar synthesizer whatever, melody of of man of our times is i love it and talk about the drums and the hi-hats and the snares and everything it's it's killer now i think they could have done phil a favor and maybe lowered the key 
because um, <laughs> it really sounds painful. And this song also introduces the band's fascination with the word tonight. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I picked up on that. Well, I appreciate what you're saying about the, the vocals sounding painful. I do like sort of the vocal layering of the verses versus the chorus and the way Phil kind of shifts it around a little bit and gives you the impression that it's not just Phil. Yeah, yeah. I personally like the, the sort of driving mechanical feel of of the verses. It's like a machine that's grinding you up and it's going <laughs> to... Yeah, there is, a, there is a sinister aspect to it that's yeah. quite appealing. Yeah. I would just say the proof is in the pudding. They just didn't carry this into their live sets. That's that's also a very valid point. I this might be difficult to to recreate live. I, I don't know. Maybe Phil said, "Fuck you, I'm not singing that shit live." <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but the the vocal range reminds me of uh, a story I've heard more than once about Don Henley and Boys of Summer, where they changed the key just to get him to the brink of breaking. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this is definitely Phil on the brink of breaking. And then we get to, you know, one of the biggies, misunderstanding. Misunderstanding is one of those, I consider this album to be a semi-concept album in that you have a few incongruities and misunderstanding is one of them. Misunderstanding, even I, with all of my, you know, mental gymnastic ability cannot fit misunderstanding into any narrative that I construct around this album. Just can't do it. Um, (laughs) It's a single, so it did its job. It's, I know this is a trigger for you, Paul, but, but maybe it's the, Hey, you of Duke. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Hey, you just doesn't fucking belong anywhere in anywhere. Um, (laughs) but, But, you know, for me, I don't necessarily think of Duke as a story. Right. I think of it as just a thematic piece. I love the song Misunderstanding, except for the fact that it's on Duke. I don't think yeah. it really <laughs> belongs on Duke. Um, I, I agree with you. It fit. It would fit so much better to me in Abacab. Yes. Um, the, the guitars yeah, are I mean, could you so see, delicious could you see this on this. Along with Man on the Corner? I mean, uh, yeah. two sides of a coin. It's a great song, but it just... it does to me interrupt the flow of all the places that you're going to i was so familiar with this tune before i even plugged in duke is that is that part of it for me because every time i got to this song i was like oh it was like a shock like oh i know this song wait a second very similar to i think i said this in the and then there were three episode it just seems like that song didn't fit either the uh the the track at the end follow you follow follow me yeah. yeah Just as one of those weird things, but I absolutely love the song. I love the story. It's it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. There's not there's not a whole lot of songwriting trickery going on, and I think Mike Rutherford is a beast on this song with his guitars. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yep, I have down here. I love the uh, the phase guitars. I think that's very cool. Mm. It's a tasteful application of phasing. Yeah, I think whenever Phil gets near the mixing console, he puts the kick drum. At the top, whether it's him or Chester. (laughs) (laughs) Mike is a beast, but sometimes you'd never know it because it's all. It's it's well, you know, what's so funny, Ken, is that this is 1980 and the drums were just about to become the centerpiece, really, of popular music. Gated snares and all of those. But Mm -hmm. but this is one of those records that really, I think, 
was planting the seeds of the drums becoming such a big deal. And obviously, I think In the Air Tonight single-handedly catapulted the drums to front and center. This was certainly the precursor. Yeah. The K-Tel compilation was called Full Tilt. And it was not as good as Rock 80. By this time, I was an expert. I was like an 11-year-old <laughs> expert. I'm like, Can you know, a collection of K-Tel hits. Because <laughs> <laughs> Rock 80 had Gary Newman's cars, you know, speaking of synth. What was it called again? Well, the one that I loved was K-Tel's Rock 80. And, and that just moved my world. And then I got the follow-up, which was Full Tilt. And it started off promising. I think it had Blondies, The Tide is High. It wasn't so bad. Um, but there are quite a few ballads on here. So m Misunderstanding is a bit heavy metal compared to the other <laughs> tracks. Wow. Rock 80 is the one that you like. But this was on the other one? Yeah. Yeah. 1980 was Rock 80. And Full Tilt was 1981. And they got the they got the licensing for misunderstanding in it. Wow! So, oh, dude, these two are freaking classics. I'm just looking at the <laughs> at the track listing. Holy crap, man! Humor, humor me. What, what, I mean, I mean, I mean. Now that you know my secret, you're gonna know how I wrote all my tunes in high oh, school. Oh yeah. So <laughs> let, we'll start. We'll start with full tilt. All right. The tide is high by Blondie, which is a fucking classic. <laughs> Uh, Let My Love Open the Door by Pete Townsend. Devo's Whip It. Oh, yeah. Some of the uh, of the SOS band had a song called Take Your Time, Do It Right. Oh, that's burned into my DNA now. Oh, Take your gosh. time, do it right. We can do it, baby. Hit me with your best shot. Cheap Trick, Ain't That a Shame. Manhattan's had a song called Shining Star. I think I remember that one. But then Rock 80, dude, is really Gary that's Newman's cool. Cars, Brass in Pocket. Cruel to be kind. Yeah. Are you really going out with him by Joe Jackson? Yeah. Heartbreaker, yeah. Pat Benatar. Oh my gosh. My doesn't Sharona. Oh, I think it ends is, with him with your best shot, doesn't it? Uh, that was the other one. This is oh. uh, Pat Benatar had Heartbreaker on this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love Leaf it. aside. Sorry, Joe. No, Sorry. no, that's very cool. So that gets us into Heat Haze, which. Ken, not a big fan of. I want to say I read on the wikis that this was this was a, a Tony track that Phil had some problems with, and Tony ultimately wishes he hadn't included it on the album. Do I have that right? Wow, really? I, I just I just think it's pretty meandering as a composition, and the chorus is amazing. Banks gets all the credit, so he must have done the words as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Cul-de-sac became a problem for Phil, not uh, not Heat Haze. So we'll talk about that. Heat Haze, you know, honestly, the trees and I are shaken by the same wind, but whereas the trees will lose their withered leaves, I just can't seem to let them loose. Mm. That line right there was, that was the key. I fell in love with that line, and every time I hear it, I get a little warm and fuzzy inside. I just think it's so freaking beautiful. I, I love it so much. And so I will forgive any sins that Heat Haze has because of that. Apparently. Because it has <laughs> sins. <laughs> this is the, the amazing thing. We've, we've talked about this before with Genesis. They will somehow make work the craziest freaking lyrics. 
who else puts whereas in a fucking song, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it just flows right through. And I want to say I, I heard a quote from either either Mike or Tony that basically said, yeah, you, you know, give anything to Phil and he'll make it sound good. But yeah. Peter, Peter did the same thing. I mean, they they were always singing about weird stuff. Yeah, except that when Peter had to do it, there was a lot more going on musically than what, you know. Yeah. Th these were just tricky chord changes. He didn't have to listen to all the three instruments fighting each other. <laughs> if there was a list of Genesis songs that I would like Fish to sing, this is number one. Ooh. I get sort of that, you know, Fish era Marillion flavor uh, to this. And this is why I, I really I've come to really respect Tony Banks lyrics, because he just says, even if it does, even if it's maybe not the best representation or, you know, he's like, that is the best representation. That's what I want to say when he says. Beware the fisherman who's casting out his line into a dried up riverbed, but don't try to tell him because he won't believe you throw some bread to the ducks instead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, it, it's just like, wow, it's you know, easier that way. People always I, bag on Tony for his lyrics. I find I love Tony Bang's lyrics. Absolutely it, love them. Yeah. And we're talking about <laughs> the overall scheme of the futility of ambition, right? And there are times when people will just bang their head against the wall over and over and over again. It's the definition of insanity. You just keep doing the same thing over, expecting something different to happen. And he's basically saying, don't try to tell the fisherman that he's casting a line into a dried up riverbed, that he's trying to fish in a place where fish don't live. Don't try to tell him that because he won't believe you. Instead, it'll be easier if you just throw some bread to the ducks that are right there because maybe he'll see it. Or maybe won't. at least you'll feed the ducks and go on your yeah. merry way. Yeah, because <laughs> it's easier to just feed the ducks and move along. But, but I mean, that... it is, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and that goes back to, you know, one of the things that I've sort of had to learn in my life, which is I have control over what I spend my energy on. And as I get older, I have less and less energy and I have to be more judicious about where I spend it. So, yeah, if, if this guy's not going to listen to me, I'm not going to spend my energy trying to convince him. Boom. Speaking of being judicious about spending your money, I'm, you know, bopping around the internet you know on all of these websites looking at lyrics looking at you know ktel uh compilations and um it's quite apparent based on the ads that are being served up to me that i have been spending a lot of time browsing gibson guitars lately <laughs> <laughs> i do have a couple notes here that here again in heat haze we do have the electric piano that i love so much in the intro that is beautiful yeah. Yeah, that's where I was going. Is this peak CP70 for you guys? Yeah. And uh, and we do have some some beautiful uh, Mike Rutherford bass fills, which are always oh, nice. Oh, the bass in Heat Haze? Come on. It's so good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Think about where we started, right? Because when we started out with Behind the Line, I spoke specifically about the energy. And then we get into sort of like the, the very graphic story and the, and the guide vocal. Man of Our Times kind of wakes you up a little bit. And then you get kind of the downer part. And then you get to flip the vinyl over and it's like it starts all over again. You know, this is one of the cases where having, uh, you know, listening to this on vinyl and having that 30, 60 second mechanism of, of turning it over before you hit the second side gives you a 
chance to catch your breath before you you run in to turn it on again. For me, and Paul, you kind of talked about this, you know, turn it on again maybe wears you out a little bit at this point. Hmm. Intellectually, I agree with you, but I still find myself just rocking the freak out every time I, I hear it anyway. Yeah. I, I, I just can't stop myself. But Ken, you wanted to demystify, turn it on again. Yeah. Well, um, our listeners know it. We don't have to go into the obvious, uh, but I just wanted to catch this 13-8 time signature and nip it in the bud in the most sincere of ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> really, the the song is is in groups of three and four, and it's primarily a song in four, and the best vocal parts are primarily in four, and you know, they'll say, oh, people try to dance to this at a concert and it trips them up. Or at the Six of the Best concert, Peter Gabriel sat in on drums and the song tripped him up. And, you know, it's it's got a mythology to it. And I guess in, in, in Phil's telling at one point, he had to break it to Mike that it was in 13.8. Okay, well, well, Phil's own count in the beginning when he does his famous one, two, three, four, that is establishing a count. So... I wouldn't say it's in 13.8. I would say maybe it's in 13.4 if you want to count it that way. <laughs> but um, I, but, I'd agree with that. To me, you have to subdivide based on melody. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you really follow the melody, it's really much more like a measure of 6.4 followed by a measure of 7.4. Yes. Which, yes. which ultimately yes. is 13.4. But right. to me, it right. doesn't right. really feel like 13.4. Right. It feels like two separate measures. It's, it's like and, the ocean, right? <laughs> it's 4.4. Four, and then there's that measure of 7.8 in there. Right, right, right. But but I don't fault Phil for being a little bit hyperbolic and originally telling the story. You know, m musicians by nature only get short interviews and, <laughs> and musicians are enter entertainers and it's the perfect time to be hyperbolic. He didn't have a little palaver going on where you could go into detail. He just, you know, just some fascinating trivia about this song in regards to this time signature. Th this song gets faster and faster <laughs> in different concerts. And I just want to say, you know, dear Genesis, never play this song too fast. Again, signed loving fan. Um, it, I, uh, God, I hate it when it's fast. And, and if, if they want to be a party band, stop writing so many goddamn ballads and write a party song. But they're like, oh, you know, we don't have enough party songs in our repertoire. We're going to play Turn It On Again 50% faster than it's supposed to be. No, do not do that. Stop. stop. <laughs> I, it's not right. You got to You got to play the song at, at its tempo or close. Now, this whole odd time thing, they started off the chugga chuggas in the beginning are, you know, I guess you can count it one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, one, two, three, four, if you really want to be crazy and wild. But that was just to be fancy in the studio. They scrapped that. And in the live versions, it eventually becomes nothing but 4-4 four, four because they're vamping on it to get the, cloud, the crowd into it. And they just need to stay together. And all that fancy stuff at the beginning just devolves into a regular 4-4 four, four beat anyway. So th that's one thing that I noticed and counted out very deliberately. And even when they get into the... Uh, I, I, it's so lonely when she's not there. You know, that's just groups of threes and then a group of two, but it goes back to four. 
And then they do it again, and it's three groups of threes, and then that goes back to four. And they they do have some miraculous measures of three, but it's it's Tony Banks like really clamping down on the keyboard and really forcing it. But you know, for the most part, this is just a a driving rock song, and I just I just find the whole mythology here a little bit insincere maybe hyperbolic maybe intellectually dishonest it it it's a rock song and and they 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 dropped a few beats here and there and just you know don't don't make it into something i love it ken this takes me back to conversations that i remember you guys used to have trying to figure out time signatures for for songs that you either liked or wanted to play or whatnot um I, i just i find it interesting in this documentary this Les Davidson fellow clearly addresses this, and his interpretation is that it's two bars of 4-4 four, four, followed by one of 5-4. And that's how he gets to 13. So No, I like Paul's in. No, 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 because... I'm just telling you what yeah. Les said, man. Yeah, that guy, Les that, is wrong. He's yeah, completely yeah. wrong. No, if you have to count to six to get what Paul... Well, our, our, I'm, I'm even going to blow that myth out of... The first time they do the lick, it's in eight. The very first time they because they have those two chords that build up. Bum, bum, ba da dum, bum, 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 six, seven, eight. They hold it the full time. It's true. It's and true. And they could have done that the whole friggin' song, but, but they they, they made it more exciting by dropping some beats. Ken's I, I, dropping I, the beats. I am I am not disagreeing <laughs> with you. I'm merely I'm conveying what I saw. I think Les only counted the very first time they did it. I think he missed the rest of it. Well, I'm not so yeah. sure how, you know, crackerjack okay. Les was. He's he's better than than Malcolm Dome, but Yeah, I I tend to agree with Ken on that. I th- I think that you know, it's it's fun to to talk about it. This is what connects the past to the future, right? These are progressive rock guys that you know, did the apocalypse in nine eight and they're taking a, a straightforward riff and Rutherford wrote this song. He you know, he wrote an extra beat in there and they just took it for all it's worth. It's and- it's fantastic and it's fun. It what's it to me, it's what makes this song fun. And if I misrepresented myself by saying that perhaps I did not like I grew tired of this song, I'm sorry. That's what makes this song so much fun is when you're tra- traveling along and you get to the part and you get that extra bump, bump, psh, dang, right? It's just that's it, you can do it right <laughs> on the I, steering wheel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get no, the yeah. extra seventh beat and then on the end of seven, he hits the oospla and you're back to the game. It's oh, fun. there's great oospla in this song. It's yeah. Fun. Yeah. Yep. A lot of a lot of and a four stuff. Even yeah. you in the four part. Yeah. I love it. Ken, thank you for demystifying. It's always good when the palaver can bring clarity to the world. <laughs> well, let me just say uh check out Live in nineteen eighty. That was a pretty cool one. And two thousand seven, kinda nice all in four four. So this is all YouTubeable. So that gets us into Alone Tonight. So we sort of switch back and we get that that longing again. Um, after rocking it out for a little bit, I don't skip it. It's fine. I'm just not ready for a ballad here, man. Alone tonight. And at the very end, he goes, tonight, tonight. Like, it only mattered because by the time that I heard this song, I already heard, because tonight, tonight, tonight. <laughs> oh, right. I mean, so that was already in my head. Plus, in the air tonight, like the, like from 1980, we highlighted the word tonight. And here's another example. I dig the song. I think this song, this goes out to the haters of Duke 
because they quote unquote, you know, went pop and filled it all this stuff. This is a Rutherford song, I believe. And this could have just as easily been on. And then there were three, as far as I'm concerned, with all kinds of compressed guitars and smaller drums. Yeah, I mean, I think about it. So, you know, again, at the end of side one with with Heat Haze, we had sort of the uh, the, the realization that, you know, life wasn't great. And it, it, you flip it over, and you get on, turn it on again, and you have this impression of energy and, and sort of a, a re a refocused approach, right? You know, I certainly have those days where I'm not very good at my job and I feel shitty. And I have to, you know, sometimes I have to wake up the next day and, and say, just get in there, fix what you fucked up and do better today. And that's kind of what I feel Turn It On Again is in terms of the overall story. Although you still get that hint that all is not well. I get so lonely when she's not there, right? So you, you've got that hanging out in there. And then following this particular metaphor, you go home and you're alone and all those doubts sort of creep back into your brain. <laughs> and, and, and here it is. It manifests itself. And this obviously flows perfectly into the hammer blow that comes next in cul-de-sac. <laughs> yeah. And that may or may not be a square hammer, but we'll figure that uh -huh. out. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> a ghost reference. <laughs> That's a great call out, Joe. And I'm glad you said it. And I think it, it is a great setup. And I think musically too, it makes a really good contrast between sort of the straight ahead rock song of Turn It On Again minus or additional of a couple beats and the what i think is just a tour de force powerhouse cul-de-sac alone tonight fits very nicely and it sort of brings you down sort of calms the waters a bit before it takes you through to the end i think it's um yeah musically it sets the stage quite well now cul-de-sac man what oh boy whoa we have more of this wonderful electric piano. The introduction to this song is extraordinarily orchestrated. You've got three guys, but it feels like it's an orchestral piece to me. Here you have Tony, perhaps in his most sublime in terms of that. And, and again, you've got Phil and Mike on the bass just killing it underneath all of that. So here we see the inevitable fall of our protagonist. We all knew this was going to happen. We've been through ups and downs. And at the end of the day, everyone's going to wind up worm food. That's just the way it is. And I love this level of cluelessness that is is conveyed here. Because our protagonist, whether it be a single person, a group of people, whatever it is, has no idea what's coming down to get them because they're blinded by that ambition that we've already talked about. Now Phil brings in this sort of, this nasty edge to the delivery of this. There's a level of contempt that he is able to convey as he's singing these words. And it's like, don't even feel bad for this person because they're so clueless and they're just going to be wiped <laughs> from the face of the earth. <laughs> I mean, but there was some relationship contempt and behind the lines, and there was some contempt <laughs> for the, <laughs> well, the and, Duchess. And, I mean, there there is consistent contempt, but well, and, uh, and 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 that's the beauty of it, right? So we know where this is coming from. Phil put everything on hiatus. He moved to Vancouver to save his marriage. It didn't work. 
He had to come back to the UK. He puts himself into his work. We know what that feels like. We know mm -hmm. what he's dealing with. And mm -hmm. the fact that he is able to, in some cases, convey that directly, a la misunderstanding or please don't ask, but in other cases, it translates on this metaphor level. I just find that to be so remarkable on this album. In this case, he's doing it all really via performance because I believe this is a Tony Banks song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was the one that apparently Phil was having trouble with, according to the wikis, which this is so powerful. How could he have had trouble with this? I, it, I don't know. You almost wonder, like, when he hears this, what he thinks. Is he hearing something different than we are? Is he hearing, like, bad notes? Is he hearing, like, what he wanted it to be? Because to me, it's it's just phenomenal. Oh. All those dreams of old will be stories left untold, cut off in your prime, extinct until the end of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's I your Ozzy Mandias moment. I was the lead in Pippin in high school. You know, that was my, that was like my, my glory day story. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's like my glory day story. Yeah. I'm done now. <laughs> cut off of my prime. Cut off of my uh -huh. prime at 18. One of the greatest things about this song is it just starts out with a little piano. And then he says, Wake up now. This is the time you've waited for. And for me, in a song that is everything that you just said, Joe, it is just a sinister and it is to, to start with a line that to me conveys so much hope and right. excitement, right? Hey, wake up. This is it. This is what you've been waiting for. You know, go get it. Yeah, this is your big day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And and what a phenomenal metaphor overall for I mean it's just and and whew. so here here again for me, you know, we we we've always here on the Palaver, we've always danced around the the conversation of what is Prague, you know, besides odd time and signatures and and hobbit shit. <laughs> <laughs> But for me, one part of that is is this sort of intricate storytelling and, and flipping things on its head. It's not the whole thing, but it's part of it. And in my opinion, misunderstanding aside, I find Duke to be a very proggy album, and this mm. is part of it. I love it. I love it. And the fucking ending is just... Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the instrumentation and the and the changes of the progression almost becomes chordal at one point. It's just just so powerful. And then it ends. I mean, think about all of the subject matter that we just talked about. And then it ends with bling, bling, bling. The soundtrack dissonance is just phenomenal. This was the most recent sort of thing I had to sort of reconcile because when you get all excited about cul-de-sac and then you've got to go to please don't ask and you're like, what the fuck? But again, it's this third person versus first person. Some of the actual lyrics in Please Don't Ask take me out of the imagined milieu in my head. It does convey this idea that I have just been run over by life and this is it. On a certain level, I've sort of come to grips with Please Don't Ask in, in this particular spot. I don't know where else you would put it on this record. 
it's an interesting little, if we're using the, the theater metaphor here, it's an interesting little soliloquy because you already know what the end's going to be. You sort of look in the character's brain before that happens, and then you have to finish out the movie. Wow. It's a very personal expression from Phil, presumably, given what he's he's going through. But the way that they were able to sort of, again, track this album into a place where I can make sense of it, I find that to be quite impressive. As it goes, the Michael Stipe words of how he broke up with his girlfriend and he was so upset and he was devastated and he drove and he the love song came on he goes oh my god this song is exactly everything i'm going through i can't believe it and the next song came on he's like oh my god this is a song is the exact thing that i went through and by the third song he was like all these songs suck they're all the same <laughs> and and then he he went home and wrote the one i love there's a lot of truth to that in love songs they're you know they all kind of go down the same road this one is not that way this one is a breakup song that, you know, literally is sitting down and working through how that I feel. And, you know, there's a certain piece in this. I know that the kids are well. You're a mother to the world. But I miss my boy. I hope he's good as gold. There's a peaceful sort of realization that in the tragedy of relationships loss, that there can still be some peace found somewhere, even though there's a great deal of obvious regret and disappointment and difficulty here. It's a wonderful song. And to my previous comment about some clairvoyance that I may have had, it's very, very powerful. And I think it's something that no matter where you've been in life, you can, you can connect to. So linear. Yeah. I mean, it does have a chorus, but it makes me feel not like a pop song. It makes me feel more like a spoken word And that leads us to Duke's Travels and Duke's End. Mm, that's what I sent to you. That's... Uh, yeah. Daryl Sturmer on bass, uh, playing at the Lyceum in 1980. Duke's Travels through Duke's End, just beautifully performed. So they, they've done this before. Los Endos on Trick of the Tale is sort of a an album retrospective, if you will, instrumental jam. Well, I know Los Endos, and this is no Los Endos, sir. And, and, and that is my point. And, and so I have made the comment on previous palavers that Genesis music from Trespass to Duke is more or less a predictable trajectory you you can it, it's a it's an orderly transition you can kind of see how one goes to the other and everything else and i made the argument that duke is the finest representation of that i think duke's travels and duke's end is a is a large part of that because los endos in a lot of ways is a preparatory sketch for this particular masterpiece I think here they understood how to do this and they knocked this one out of the park. They don't just reprise the music, which is interesting and wonderful and everything else. And it brings in all the different parts of, of the story, but it's the reprise of guide vocal here that just cements this. Here's our special sauce right here. 
we have the same the same lyric with one very important extra added line but the perspective is totally different so whereas before we were sad we were despondent that we couldn't carry this through at this point after you've gone through everything else and you've had the hammer fall and cul-de-sac and everything else now it's got this angry edge to it and it's not despondent anymore it's not sad it's pissed off <laughs> so when phil delivers take what's yours and be damned he's may as well be saying fuck off buddy it, it's <laughs> it's amazing we have just tony shredding we've got phil and mike doing their thing and then they go into what is it is it a halftime section just before we get into the guide vocal and you got the guitar lead into that and you get into to the guide vocal and you know here again i am the one who guided you this far all you know and all you feel nobody must know my name for nobody would understand and you kill what you fear and here's the missing line and you fear what you don't understand whoa i mean that's a big important aspect to this and what makes it even more important is now this one line that you didn't have before they use that line to dial the music back for the rest of the guide vocal and oh it just freaking melts my brain out of my head mm. thank you joe nice joe i love it i love it i love it i literally have a special reaction every time I hear this section. And that, my friends, is why I think Duke is the greatest Genesis album. I'm so excited we finally got to talk about this record. When we started this journey a couple years ago, this I've wanted to talk about this record since then. This record was one of the motivators for doing the palaver. Okay. Why not do the Duke type stuff and just tack the singles at the end? Would that still work for you? I honestly don't think it would. I personally enjoy sort of the the roller coaster and I enjoy the the change in perspective that I think some of the other songs bring. And and that that's why I said at the at the top of the episode, I think the the tracking of this is what makes it as proggy as it is. I think if you just had side one was the what we'll call the Duke suite, and you sort of blew your prog wad, and then the rest was you know singles, it it, it wouldn't flow. You would you would never. I would never sit down and listen to both sides of that record. I would listen to one side. I would listen to the other side. I would. I, I don't think I would ever listen to both at the same time okay so this packaging makes the whole thing palatable in such an interesting way that you're just consuming the whole meal all at once rather than right yeah. for, and, for me know, and, and, and yeah and i i certainly i understand you know people who don't feel that way but but for me that this is the key yeah and, and i think you know joe is is looking for a story that that goes through each one of these songs and I, I think it's possible to do that because all of these songs are thematically very very similar it's not like 2112 
where you know side a is this you know science fiction fantasy and then side b is just like sort of like regular songs or even um hemispheres for that matter yeah they're you know these songs maintain the same theme or the same thematic contents I'll give it to you on theme, but man, misunderstanding is doo-wop and Motown and turn it on again well, is, is very clearly contemporary. So so I think what, yeah, well, what, I, what I experience is a little bit of a jerk in uh, the mot and, and Ken, those two songs in particular, the two big singles, I agree with you. They don't really fit in here. They don't belong. And it's funny that, that the, the two, and I think this goes back to the, the general perception of the album, right? Because the, the, the two songs that everyone knows are the two songs that really don't jive with the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm ready to sign on to say that Turn It On doesn't jive with the rest of the album. I'm okay with Turn It On. I think particularly from the standpoint of flipping the record yeah. or flipping the cassette. Turned It On is a much-needed release after Heat Haze and a much-needed release prior to some of what we're going to get on side two. Absolutely. It's a, it's a terrific opener, I think, that that stands up with Behind the Lines. I've already said Misunderstanding doesn't really fit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Duke thumbs up, 2112 thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple. Uh, but but let's, let's go back to what we had on the uh, texts. Because we did talk about the young incongruity of Behind the Lines being recorded by Phil Solo. Oh, I was oh. hoping to avoid that altogether. But in preparation for this, I wanted to listen to Face Value because of Behind the Lines and because of you know the relationship in terms of time and when it was written and, and everything else. I have always had a very difficult relationship with face value. I absolutely love his second album, Hello, I Must Be Going. I really, for the most part, I, I don't like face value. And I think his treatment of Behind the Lines is absolutely terrible. All right. Well, I'm going to put a positive spin on it. Okay, please do. Ha- ha- having seen some Phil footage, when he does Behind the Lines live with the big band, it can be really awesome in the live setting. I just don't think that was captured in his yeah, and, and studio version. So when we talked about that Nebworth concert in, in 90 with, you know, they had the horns doing Turn It On Again, you know, very, very cool. I can see where maybe Behind the Lines would, would do that live, but but maybe you're right. They just weren't able to sort of capture that on the recording in a way that translated. Yeah. The recording is terrible. I, and maybe, maybe it, maybe that song could be, maybe that interpretation of the song could be the better interpretation. But I, there's absolutely no way that will ever permeate my brain because, I, to me, it, it it should be the way it's done in Duke. So um, it's just hard for me to open my brain to that after after being so. Uh, enamored well, with it here because well, fu- function over form i think it, it maybe bridged some of the phil songs back to genesis and served as a segue and 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 i think uh you know hopefully uh mike and tony got some writing credits for the version that sold 
you know, yeah. through uh, Phil. So I, it just seemed to be an amicable bridge. I, I'm sure it worked as Phil intended it to work. Yeah, that's well said. When I listen to it, I feel like Phil was like, I really want to do something here. I'm not really sure what it is. And then a couple of years later, he wrote Susta Studio. And, uh, he, was like, and oh, he was like, there it is. That's what I've been trying to do all this time. <laughs> I always talk or laugh or joke or whatever. I remember when Nine Inch Nails came out, Pretty Hate Machine. And it, it, it had a certain sound to it. And then by Nine Inch Nails' third record, where it just became, to me, a little overwhelming. But I think that at that point, Trent Reznor had figured out how to actually produce the records that he wanted. And if he'd had the techniques at his fingertips on Pretty Hate Machine, it would have sounded exactly like that. So, I, you know, maybe mm. part of that. I wonder if it would have ever done as well if it did, if it sounded like that. I doubt it would have. Um, <laughs> okay. Trent Reznor, I mean, it's hard for me to really think about him in a serious fashion because I think he was like the head of A&R at some record company not too, not too long past. Trent Reznor was? Kind of like a joke, if you ask me. Really? Yeah. That, that that tells me where his brain was the whole time of his, uh, all of his, I mean, he made angst fashionable and Pretty Hate Machine is pretty freaking spectacular, but there's only a couple of Nine Inch Nails tracks that I really get into after that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for spending all this time with me while I got my geek on about uh, about Duke. I think we did this well. At this point, and by by their own admission, they were beginning to fear becoming repetitive. And so I think, you know, again, by their own admission, Abacab was something different. They purposefully took a left-hand turn. And, you know, so I can't wait to talk about that. And and, and from here, you know, the I think they are completely unrestrained in regard to anything that, that they do. And it will be interesting to to talk about, you know, these next few albums where we go through a pretty heavy spectrum um, at this. So it'll be fun. Okay. One thing will be constrained, I guarantee you, and that's the bass in the mix. <laughs> oh, wait till we talk about... Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. I that's can't why wait. the bootlegs are so key. <laughs> awesome. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome, solicit, and look forward to your thoughts, your comments, your feedback, and your questions. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Here's my prediction for tonight. We finish up around 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and at, and at 1.45, we get a text message from Joe saying, I don't think we did it justice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>